this morning, haven't we? It's just been rich. Thank you, choir and orchestra. We only have uh, one week left of the choir and orchestra, and then they're going to be uh, taken off for the summer, which I guess is a tradition of our church. So you know, make sure that you uh, be here next week for their final week before the summer break for them. Uh, good news is we still got music all summer, all right? So uh, it's just that it's, it's going to be a rhythm section and our frontline singers, and they'll continue to lead us in worship throughout the summer. Okay, we got some significant work to do in His Word this morning. Uh, somebody said to me just uh, recently, they said, Jamie, boy, you seem to be really in your sweet spot when you uh, are going through a book of the Bible. And I'm like going, well, duh, I'm a pastor. Like, you know, I mean, you know, give me a topic, I'll speak on it because pastors do that. But I do got to tell you guys, I just, I love taking you through a book of the Bible. And uh, in a few weeks, I'm going to be going on a study break. And part of my, my week-long study break will be seeking the Lord for where we should go in 2010 in the Word. And, and I'm just so excited about uh, what books we're going to study in 2010. But for right now, uh, we're going to finish Second Peter over the next few weeks and into July. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you for your Word. Uh, as I said earlier, Lord, we'd be, I'd be lost without it. I certainly would not know how to address these people and what to say. I'd be just taking a stab in the dark at who you are and what you're about. But Lord, you've revealed yourself. And, uh, and Lord, you've given us cogent, understandable, rational explanation of who you are and uh, how you function in this world and in our lives. And so as we open up to a paragraph in your book today, Father, I pray that you'd help us understand it rightly. I pray at the very least to be encouraging to us, if not very challenging to us in our faith. And so uh, we just commit this time to you now in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, uh, probably one of the most common accusations or arguments against Christianity is that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories or myths formulated over the years and now put together into one big book that has about as much fact behind it as Grimm's fairy tales. It's a common thing that that we've heard over the last, as we're going to see, 2,000 years that people have accused Christianity and by extension Judaism as being just a bunch of fables. Uh, Richard Dawkins is an outspoken atheist and author of the book The God Delusion, and he's probably one of the most popular modern-day proponents of this view that the Bible is just a bunch of myths. And in a recent documentary-slash-movie entitled Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, Ben Stein sits down with Richard Dawkins and he asks him about his views. And so I want you to look up here on the screen and let's look at how Dawkins presents his charge against Christianity. Hello, Professor Dawkins. How are you? I'm Ben Stein. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. How are you? Fine, thank you. You have, uh, you have written that uh, God is a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. No, I didn't say quite that. I said something rather better than that. Oh, well, please tell us what you said. Please tell us what you said. <laughs> um, uh, well, I would have to read it from, from, from the book. No, please. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So that's what you think of God? Yeah. How about, how about if people believed in a God of infinite lovingness and kindness and forgiveness and generosity, sort of like the modern-day God? Why spoil it for them? Oh, um, 
Why not just let them have their fun I'm and enjoy happy. it? I mean, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. I, I write a book. People can read it if, if they want to. Um, I believe that it is a liberating thing to free yourself from primitive superstition. So religion is a primitive superstition? Oh, I, I think it is, yes. So you don't believe in any god anywhere? Any god anywhere would be completely incompatible with, 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 with anything that I've said. In, in, I, I assume. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to make sure you don't okay. believe in any god anywhere. No. What if, you, if after you died you ran into God? He said, what have you been doing, Richard? I mean, what have you been doing? I've been trying well, to be nice to you. Yeah. I gave you a multi-million dollar paycheck yeah. over and over again with your book, and look what you did. Bertrand Russell was, had that point put to him, and he said um, something like, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? It's been an accusation against Christians and Jews for thousands of years now that the Bible is not a factual book about God, but the opposite. It's just a bunch of made-up stories and myths. And as I said earlier, folks, what you need to know is that this is not a new accusation leveled against Christianity. I mean, not at all. In fact, every generation since the time of Christ and even before the time of Christ in the Old Testament has heard the charge that the Bible is a bunch of myths. And as we're going to see even today, the New Testament writers building upon the Old Testament heard this accusation in their day and age as well, that what they were writing, even before the ink dried on the page, some accused them of writing a bunch of made-up stories. And so how do we answer this? Well, what's the response that even the New Testament itself gives to this idea that what they were writing was a bunch of myths? When I was in Israel last March, one of the most fascinating cities we visited was an ancient Roman city just south of the Sea of Galilee called Beit Sha'an. And it was not a city that held any direct biblical significance like Nazareth or Capernaum or Jerusalem, but it was a fascinating city nonetheless. It was about 2,000 years old and it showed the incredible ingenuity and advances of the Roman culture in and around the time of Jesus. So, for instance, they had the famous Roman road. You can see it down the center of your picture there in the city, still intact after 2,000 years. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but we redo roads about once every four or five years in our nation, right? They did roads back then that lasted 2,000 years. As we went through this city, we saw Roman bathhouses and stadiums and intricate mosaic floor patterns, all in some state of preservation after hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet what blew me away the most were the pillars. Look up here on the screen, the pillars. The fact that the pillars that once held up these buildings that have now been destroyed and fallen were still intact after 2,000 years. I mean, granted, many of these pillars might have fallen over the years and now have been pushed up by archaeologists as they reconstructed the city, but the fact that these pillars still existed after two millennium and the fact that they could still be used to support the structures at the very least was a credit to Roman architecture. And it was an amazing sight to see pillars that can survive thousands of years of onslaught and decay and exposure to all kinds of opposing forces. I mean, these were some pillars. And that's the idea behind pillars, isn't it? Is that they support the structure that they're upholding and they can last a very long time as we see in pillars lasting 2,000 years. And so with this idea and image in mind, what I want you to do is to consider two timeless pillar answers that Peter in the Bible gives us in response to the every generation charge that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories. 
you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open up to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. And we're going to look up through verse 21. 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 16. And what you're going to see here is the pillars of the charge against Christianity that is just a bunch of myths. The context is the charge has been leveled at Peter and the other writers of the New Testament that what they were writing was mythical in nature, no different than Homer's Odyssey or all the other mythical stories about Greek gods. Again, as I said earlier, it's not a new charge that's being leveled even today against Christianity. And in giving us the answer to this charge, Peter gives us one overall challenge supported by two very hard-to-knock-down pillars. And I've listed the challenge that Peter gives us in your outline this morning. It's challenge number five as we make our way through this short letter. And so here it is. Look up here on the screen. And that is he tells us not to dismiss dismiss the historical and intellectual underpinnings of your faith or of our faith. He says don't dismiss the historical and intellectual underpinnings of your faith. In other words, the faith that you and I have in Jesus Christ has some historical and intellectual grit to it. It has some teeth. It has a solid foundation. To use the image that we just looked at, it rests on a number of pillars that are more than capable of standing the test of time and supporting the structure of our faith and activity. That's what Peter is putting out before us here today. And so the first pillar that Peter mentions is this, and that is that the New Testament claims about Jesus are historically based eyewitness claims. He's going to tell us that they are historically based eyewitness claims. And so look at how Peter establishes this first pillar. Look at verses 16 to 18 of 2 Peter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were... Here he goes, eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So don't miss, folks, what Peter is making very clear here. He begins by saying that he saw, heard, and experienced Jesus. He says he and others saw, heard, and experienced Jesus. I mean, he begins in verse 16 there by saying we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And that word eyewitness is the Greek word epoptai. And it literally means, get this, to have firsthand acquaintance with something, to be a watchful observer. It carries with it the idea that you visibly and physically verify what you are claiming. It's interesting, in Peter's day, the great philosopher Aristotle had established a few hundred years earlier that eyewitness testimony was needed to verify, and I quote, whether a thing had occurred or not occurred. And so what Peter is saying is that his eyewitness testimony verifies what he's saying is occurred, that he's living within the rules of accepted testimony within his day. And notice further that he says, we were eyewitnesses. That's really important. We were eyewitnesses, meaning more than one. And so John, Matthew, and Paul would also tell in their New Testament writings of being eyewitnesses as well. And as if all of this weren't enough, Peter goes on to clarify even more by saying there in verse 17, we ourselves heard. Do you see that there in verse 17? He says, we heard. 
We'll get to what Peter heard in just a minute. But for now, simply note that Peter is not just limiting his factual testimony to only one of his five senses, but he's broadening it right here to include a second sense as well. He's saying that we didn't just see what we're claiming about when it comes to Jesus. We heard some things as well. I like how Peter Davids, who is one of the foremost experts on the book of Second Peter alive today, would say it. He says that at this point, Peter is dealing with, and I quote, matters of fact. He is speaking to the veracity, he says, of his witness that he heard him as well. And then notice that Peter includes a third sensory observation to his factual testimony. He says there in verse 19, for we were with him. We were with him. In other words, we experienced His presence. We touched Him. That's a tactile thing. We talked with Him. We interacted with Him. So it would be no different that if you and I would, say, meet somebody really important today, like maybe Dr. Daryl Delhousay. Have you ever met him? So like if you met Dr. Daryl Delhousay, the president of Phoenix Seminary, and somebody said, really? Like, is he really real? What would you say? You'd say, of course he's real. I've met with him. I've talked to him. I've heard his corny jokes. I've, I've listened to him for years. I've shaken his hand. I've experienced Dr. Del Husay. I'm telling you, he's real. Folks, that's what Peter is saying here. That they had been with Jesus. They experienced him tangibly and physically. And don't miss what Peter's doing here. It couldn't be more clear. He's saying that he and others saw heard and experienced both God and Jesus. And by saying this, they are establishing an historical intellectual foundation, a pillar to support all the truths that flow out of this. And so what is it that they saw, heard, and experienced? That's the key question. Well, though we can assume that Peter would say that everything that he claims about Jesus falls under this seeing, hearing, and experiencing testimony, in the immediate context here, however, he's referring to one particular event. Many of you picked up on it right away. It's called the transfiguration of Jesus. It's the transfiguration of Jesus. Three out of the four gospel writers wrote about this. In verses 17 to 18 of our text here, Peter mentions this account here. You might remember it was a time when Jesus took Peter, James, and John alone up to a mountain. And as the account goes, he was transfigured before them. His face shone bright as the sun, they said, and his clothes turned as white as light to the point that you could almost not recognize him. And then as if that were not enough, Moses and Elijah, yes, like dead Moses and dead Elijah from 800 to 1500 years earlier appeared and were talking with Jesus. And then they heard God the Father's voice come out of the clouds saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And this was so real that Matthew says in his telling of the account that the three disciples fell on their faces and were terrified. (laughs) You can read about it in Matthew 17 or Mark 9 or Luke chapter 9. Take your choice. And what Peter's simply saying is that it really happened, that he was there. And so were James and John, and that they saw, heard, and experienced this transfiguration of Jesus and the presence of Moses and Elijah and even the voice of God the Father revealing Jesus' unique and divine status. Don't let this escape you, folks. He is saying that what he is writing about has historical validated uh, credibility. It's an eyewitness account that your faith has historical and intellectual underpinnings. And the point is simply this, that you can choose to believe Peter or you can choose not to believe Peter. 
That's the crossroads that he's taking us up to. In other words, you can trust that what he is saying is true and align your lives with the realities that flow out of this, or you can call him a liar or think he's massively deceived and reject what he's saying is untrue. But listen, what you can't do is level the claim that there is no historical veracity or intellectual credibility to what he is claiming because he's followed all the rules of his day in giving credible testimony to what he has seen, heard, and experienced. That's the point. You can say, I don't choose to believe him, but what you can't do is accuse him of having no credibility historically because he's saying these are historically verifiable things. And we're going to see in a minute, hundreds of people in Jesus' day verified that he existed and that he said the things that he said. And so unless you have one mass psychotic delusion, what our interviewer earlier calls the God delusion, I mean... Many, many people must have been deluded at that time for that to be true. And we have to simply ask ourselves, do we believe the testimony of these men or do we not? And as you think about the answer to that question, folks, you might want, what you might want to remember is that these very simple, high-integrity, law-abiding Jewish men who wrote the New Testament, and I'm talking about Peter, James, John, and Paul, would all go on to give their lives for what they claimed they witnessed. I mean, they were ridiculed. They were put in prison. They were tortured. They lost family and friends. And they would eventually die brutal deaths like being beheaded and or crucified. And all the while, all they had to do was recant. Just simply say that what they had done was merely embellished or engaged in hyperbole. And yet they didn't. To their dying day, they held fast to their testimony that what they were claiming was historically factual and true. I mean, let's face it, if you, or I, if you or I had something incredibly profound happen to us on this earth and we wrote about it, but then realized after we wrote about it that what we were writing was radically countercultural and was going to cost us our job, our money, our friends, and even our lives, we'd be very tempted to at the very least shut up and bow out gracefully, wouldn't we? I mean, that's what most people would do. They'd say, oh, I didn't, I didn't think it would create that much waves. And so you know what? Just forget I said it. I mean, yeah, I believe it's true myself, but just sort of forget that I said it. And these guys didn't do that. I mean, they took the heat for what they wrote. And they took the heat in such a way that they gave their lives these simple everyday fishermen. And you've got to ask yourself, what kind of motive might they have had for holding so fast to such a claim? I mean, would they really die for a lie? For a bunch of made-up stories with no factual or historical content? Or were they just that deceived? These normal, run-of-the-mill, working-class guys who led exemplary lives before they met Jesus. It just doesn't add up when you look at it rationally. Peter's saying the only way it does add up is that they're telling the truth. That Jesus really did exist. He really did claim to be the Son of God come in the flesh. That he really did perform miracles. That he lived a perfect and sinless life. That he taught the things that he taught. That he died on a wooden cross for our sins. That he literally rose from the dead. And then after that, as Paul the Apostle would say, he was then, and I quote, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, then appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. Folks, that's a lot of people to accuse of being liars or to accuse of one massive delusion. In short, when you think about this issue rationally and read the Bible with an open mind, I love how Dr. Clark Pinnock 
a PhD from Manchester University in England and a longtime professor at McMaster Divinity College in Canada says it in talking about the New Testament documents. You've got to wrestle with this. Look up here on the screen. He says, and I quote, there exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. He says an honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon an irrational bias. And I think he's right. I think he's dead on. And so folks, here's the deal. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, take great encouragement. Your faith is grounded in reality, historically verifiable reality. And yet if you're somebody here today who is honestly seeking the claims of Jesus here, we're so glad that you're here, I would encourage you to wrestle with the truth, truth claims that the Bible makes because their self-attestation is one of intellectual and historical credibility. And when you consider the source it's really hard to deny the claim. And we've had lots of people lie to us in history, really have, but their lives have eventually given themselves away. And yet when you look at the gospel writers and the New Testament writers' lives, there is nothing but integrity through and through. Now, as all of this this were not enough, Peter goes on to mention a second strong pillar of our faith in Christ, and it's this. Look up here on the screen. And that is that the Old Testament prophecies are further evidence of God's truth and activity. And so check this out. It's not just the eyewitness accounts from the New Testament writers that we are relying on, but also for our faith, we have the Old Testament that was written like 1,500 years, or started to be writing 1,500 years before the time of the New Testament, in which there are prophecies that came true in the time of Christ. And so look at how Peter goes on to say this in verses 19 to 21 of our text this morning. He says this. He says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so simply put, he's saying all the Old Testament prophecies, which are simply claims that the Old Testament makes that would come true with Jesus, and even after that, as the end eventually comes, that Peter says all of these things are further proof of the historical and intellectual underpinnings of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so what are we talking about, you ask? I want to show you uh, what Peter is getting at here and, and, and look at some of the prophecies that, uh, that he's referring to. Uh, Josh McDowell is arguably one of the most popular and respected defenders of the Christian faith alive today. We just had him here at our church doing a day and a half seminar on Christianity and modern culture. And over the years, he's compiled an incredible amount of evidence in defense of the Christian faith. He was at one time an agnostic, as many of you know, and he set out to disprove Christianity by looking at all of the evidence. And about halfway through trying to disprove Christianity, he became a Christian. And he wrote a book years ago called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And then he wrote a follow-up book a few years back called More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And now it's all been put in one huge book called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And i got to tell you, it's a very lengthy, 
very detailed compilation of the evidence that talks about everything from how we got our current Bible to arguments for and against God to philosophical discussions on the nature of truth and even many of the modern day arguments like we saw from Richard Dawkins against Christianity. It's 750 pages long of intense and well-documented research. And at one point in his research, he points out and talks about all the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus. Prophecies that we know were written hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene, but then came true in the life and ministry of Jesus. And according to McDowell, get this, there are no less than 61 specific Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus, and each of them were realized in the life and ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. So for instance, look up here on the screen. Isaiah seven fourteen talks about the fact that the Messiah will be born of a virgin. And sure enough, in Matthew 1, 18, we have record that Jesus was born of the virgin Mary. Genesis 49.10, Isaiah 11.1, 1, and Jeremiah 23.5 say that this Messiah is going to be from the tribe of Judah, the lineage of Jesse, and the house of David. And sure enough, Luke records that he was from the lineage and house of all three of those. Micah 5 verse 2 says that he'd be born in Bethlehem. 500 years later, Matthew records that he was born in Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31.15 says that there would be uh, a, an infanticide during the time of Jesus' birth. And sure enough, we have record from Matthew that Herod committed a terrible infanticide during Jesus' birth. And folks, you need to remember that in just these few examples that you're looking up there on the screen, there separates a minimum of 400 years, sometimes 1,500 years, from the time that these prophecies were given to their fulfillment in Christ. And I know how some of you are thinking, If you're at all skeptical, you're thinking, well, Jamie, these could just be coincidences. Or maybe some first century guy tried to manipulate Jesus' circumstance to kind of retrofit the prophetic evidence. And it could be. But listen, folks, at some point in the chain of 61 individual prophecies being fulfilled, you got to ask yourself, is this coincidence or is it God? I mean, is this really just men messing with Bible predictions or could there be some truth in this? And be rational. Be reasonable about it. And if you have any skepticism at all to this, look them up. I mean, get a good study Bible and look up all the prophecies from the Old Testament that came true in the New or get the new evidence that demands a verdict and look them up yourselves. Because in continuing our list, let me blow your mind some more. It says in the Psalms that the Messiah would be presented with gifts and the wise men brought Jesus gifts. It says in Deuteronomy that he'd be known as a prophet, and Jesus was. It says in the Psalms he'd be known as a priest, and Hebrews calls him a priest. It says in the Psalms that he'd be hailed as a long-awaited king, and all the people saw him as a king. The Old Testament says that he'd be preceded by a messenger, and John the Baptist came. It says that his ministry would be mainly in Galilee, and it was. It says that he'd perform lots of miracles, and he did. It says that he would teach in parables, short stories with a key message, and Jesus told more than 40 of them. I mean, to get even more specific, I mean, with very hard-to-control-and-manipulate kind of issues, uh, we we see in the Old Testament it says that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and Jesus did. It tells us that he'd be betrayed by a close friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12. And Judas, as you guys know, did both of these things. Or how about when Jesus was hanging on the cross, which itself was a fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament says that they would cast lots for his garments and divide them up. What do you think the chances are of that happening? I mean, these soldiers had no stake at all 
and trying to make prophecy come true. And yet that's exactly what happened. They cast lots and divided up Jesus' garments. John 19, verses 23 to 24. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of these prophecies come true, folks. Peter says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word for which you will do good to pay attention to. Why? Because these Old Testament prophecies do nothing but give us further evidence of God's truth and activity. Because as Peter so eloquently says, these things were not produced by the will of man. In other words, they weren't made up by a bunch of religious zealots looking to control the masses. But they actually came from God. And I love how Peter says it. Men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating. You can't see it in the English language, but in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, when it says there that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced. See that little phrase, ever produced by the will of man there? But then it says, but men spoke... Oh, go back here, guys. You jumped the gun. There you go. But then it says that men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That little phrase, uh, not produced or ever produced... And then that phrase, carried along, are actually the exact same Greek word or Greek word root in the New Testament. Peter's actually doing a playing on words. He's saying that that in the negative, saying that no, this wasn't produced by men. Then he says that in the positive, it was produced, carried along by God. In other words, these things really came from God. And so now give me another click here, guys. What we're seeing here today is Peter giving us a challenge that was just as true in his day as it is true here today. And that is to not dismiss the historical and intellectual underpinnings of your faith, no matter what kind of attacks come your way. Why? Because these are eyewitness accounts when it comes to what Jesus says and who he is. And we have the Old Testament as well that gives us clear prophetic evidence. I mean, the chances of it coming true are just almost nil. That things written hundreds, if not thousands of years before the time of Jesus came true in him. And so the only question we have to wrestle with is what do we do with all this? I mean, we're about ready to go to the communion table where for 2,000 years Christians have boldly celebrated the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so we should be asking, well, how do Peter's words affect all of this? And I want to speak to simply two groups in the next couple of minutes before we wrap up and go to the table. First, I want to speak to you believers who are here this morning. And what I want to say to you is that in light of what the Bible has shared with you and I this morning, live confidently. I mean, partake in the communion table confidently because get this, your faith in Jesus Christ is not like the Titanic. It's not. It's not some big institutional ocean liner that is just waiting to hit the next big iceberg of contrary historical evidence or some shocking archaeological find. It's not going to happen. The pillars of eyewitness truth claims and fulfilled Old Testament prophecy have held up your faith for 2,000 years. And like in that picture you saw earlier from Biet Sha'an, they're still standing. The pillars that you lean on for cogency and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ, are still standing. Take confidence in your life. And if you're a seeker here this morning, and again, we're so glad that you're seeking God in in, in this community of faith, I would encourage you that, that we live in a day and age of real renewed interest in spiritual truth, and this is good. 
But I encourage you to seek reasonably and with an open-minded heart and to remember that Dan Brown novels are exactly what they are. They're novels. I love to read Clive Cussler. I love to read Robert Ludlum. I read very widely of a lot of fiction, and I loved Dan Brown's novels as well. Love the movie as well. But I remember seeing that and thinking, it's a novel. That There's just no historical basis for some of the things that we see out there today that our popular culture tends to think, well, I wonder if that's true or not. It's not. There are some cogent, well, semi-cogent, arguments that we need to wrestle with that challenge the Christian faith. Don't get me wrong, but be reasonable when you look at those. And ask yourself, do these things jive with the historical truth claims of what the Bible is saying? If you're a seeker here today, I'd encourage you to remember the, uh, the thinking of Francis Schaeffer, who was a great philosopher in the last century. And he once said this as he was helping a lot of people wade through all the 20th century arguments against Christianity. He said, the real test for any worldview is, is it rational and is it livable? I like that. He says, is it rational and is it livable? In other words, does it make sense and does it work? And then he made this very bold claim and he said, and I would put before you the Bible because I have found no other truth claim this side of heaven that is both rational and livable, that makes sense and at the end of the day really works. And I think Schaefer was right. So if you're seeking Christ here today, I encourage you, just simply ask yourself, when you read the Bible, when you talk with Christians, does it make sense? Does it make sense that we live in a fallen world? Does it make sense that I was born with some strikes against me that have caused me to sin against God? Does it make sense that I need forgiveness? Does it make sense that God would send Christ to forgive me of my sin? Does it make sense that God exists and lays claim on my life? And then ask yourself, does it work? I mean, as I take God at His word, does forgiveness really provide a healing bomb? Do I really have hope, purpose, meaning, and truth in my life as a result of seeking and knowing Jesus Christ? Almost everybody he met when he walked this earth found that what he said made sense and that it was really true and it worked. And guess what? For 2,000 years since then, millions upon millions, billions, have found the same thing as well. So let's go to the communion table right now. Let's pray. Father... I thank you that uh, once again we find at least challenge, if not incredible relevance and livability in your word. God, I thank you that you've given us your word and that we can follow you into truth. And Lord, as we've, if we've looked today, I, I thank you too that our faith is not like the Titanic, that it's not some big ocean liner that's just waiting to hit the next iceberg of doubt and, and shatter all of our lives, but Lord, that our faith is really like a, a couple of well-designed, long-standing pillars. And that, Lord, our pillars that we rest on are truth and historical fact and cogency and, and stuff that just makes sense. And so, Fathers, we go to the communion table now and celebrate the uh, death and the resurrection, even the ascension of Jesus, as we take these two simple elements of the juice and the bread and realize that they symbolize the blood in the body of Jesus that was broken for our sins so that we might come to you. God, may this be a moment in time for us. May we truly worship you. And may you have our full attention and our full hearts during this time. Lord, if there's somebody seeking here today, may they continue on in their search. May they continue until they find what their hearts are looking for. And as you know, Lord, your word says that they won't find that until they find Jesus. And so, Lord, may you draw them to him. May they come to believe and trust in him for eternal life and only him. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.